few weeks back, we started going verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And last week, we read about Jesus' first public miracle that he did in a little town called Cana of Galilee. And it was at a wedding. You may recall that at this wedding, um, it was a week-long celebration. So quite a bit more extensive than the weddings that we're probably used to. And one of the most embarrassing things that can happen is for the family who's hosting the wedding to run out of wine or run out of food during the feast. And that's what happened. It was quite embarrassing for the family. And it seems like this was a close family to uh, Jesus' mother, Mary. And so she came to Jesus with the problem. And we saw the faith of Mary in John chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. She brought the problem to Jesus, and then she told the servants, whatever Jesus says, just do it. Do what he says. And so the servants then acted based on her faith, resting on her faith, and so they did what Jesus said. They filled up these washing pots that were used for the ceremonial hand cleansing, and they filled them up to the brim. And then Jesus said, scoop out what's in there, and go give it to the master of the feast. And Jesus turned that water for the washing into wine. Did a miracle there. And not only had compassion on this family who was in big trouble, but he blessed all of the people by giving them the best wine yet of the feast. And I love that picture because Jesus, he gave what's best towards the end. And that that kind of symbol that we get as he takes the water pots that are for washing that remind us of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament of the law. And Jesus took that and he made something new out of it. He made the wine out of it. Just kind of hinting at the idea of why Jesus came. He came to fulfill the law and make something new. The new covenant of grace. So now that brings us to the next section of John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 through 17 where Jesus cleanses the temple. Look at verse 13. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. Now, Passover was an annual feast of the Jews. It was one of the three feasts that the Jews were supposed to all travel to Jerusalem to celebrate together there in the heart of Israel. Passover came from God's rescuing Israel out of Egypt. You probably remember the ten plagues and the let my people go, all of those things. Well, it took those ten plagues for Pharaoh to finally set the Israelites free. And that tenth plague was where the firstborn of every family would be killed. But the Israelites in Egypt, they were commanded to take a lamb and to kill it, and then take its blood and put it on the doorpost, the doorframe of their house, so that that night, as God's judgment came through the land, any house that had blood on it, the judgment would pass over that house. But any house that did not have the blood on it, the judgment came to that house and the firstborn was killed. And so it was that final plague that Pharaoh finally set the Israelites free and God used that to rescue his people Israel. And so for every year since then, 
the Israelites were to celebrate the Feast of Passover as they remembered and celebrated God delivering them from their bondage and from their slavery. In order to celebrate Passover, they would come to Jerusalem and they would take a lamb that was, that was pure, spotless, clean, no blemishes in it, and they would bring it to the temple. And at the temple, the priests would take it and they would kill it and they would take some of it and burn it and offer it up to the Lord and they would take some of the meat and give it back to the family and you would take that home and you would barbecue it up and you would eat that meal with your family. And it was kind of like the Lord's taken some of this meat, we've taken some of this meat, and it was very symbolic of communing not just with each other, family and friends, but with the Lord. But there was a problem here. You see, Jesus came to the Jerusalem during the time of Passover and he found in the temple those who sold the oxen and the sheep and the doves and the money changers doing business. You see, this was supposed to be, hey, let's make it easy on people. They don't need to bring their lambs. We've got them right here at the temple to sell. But then it became more than that. You see, they, you would bring your lamb and the priest would say, I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry, ma'am. This, this lamb has a blemish. He's not worthy for the Passover feast. But we just happen to have some pre-approved lambs that are right here. They're pre-approved, they're pure and spotless, they're ready to go. And you're welcome to buy one of these pre-approved lambs for your family. And we'll, we'll buy your broken, you know, rejected lamb for a few pennies. Uh, you can buy our lamb for a high dollar. But before you do that, you know, we're in the temple. This is a holy place. We're not going to accept Roman money. That's Gentile stuff. We don't do that. And so you need to go over here and you need to exchange your Roman currency for temple money and, and we're going to take you know a nice exchange rate for that as you do so and so by the time you've got there perhaps traveled three or four days with your family to get to jerusalem and you bring your lamb because you want to worship the lord you want to offer to god and celebrate the passover feast you've been ripped off left and right I don't know about you, but when I feel cheated or abused, it, it makes it really hard for me to just be joyful <laughs> and makes it really hard for me to worship the Lord. And so you see, that's what was happening here. Jesus comes into the temple and it's supposed to be a place of worship, of prayer, and yet it's become a market. It's not about the Lord and him rescuing Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage. It's about making money. And just about every holiday is about that now, isn't it? <laughs> and so here Jesus comes. You know, the Passover celebration was supposed to be a huge symbol pointing towards the ultimate Passover lamb, which is Jesus. John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29 says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 7, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. You see, it was symbolic not just of what God had done, but symbolic of what he was about to do here in Jerusalem in a few years as Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, came and was sacrificed for the people. And so again, look at verse 13. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. 
When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured the changers' money out and overturned the tables. Did you catch that at the beginning of verse 15? Before Jesus drove out the animals, before he drove out the merchants, before he flipped the tables and spilled the money out, did you see what Jesus did? It says that he made a whip of cords. Think about that. I mean, Jesus didn't go into the temple and just grab the closest thing nearby and start smacking away. But Jesus stood there or sat there and he made a whip of cords. And then he drove it out. This shows me that this was not a last minute act out of frustration. This was premeditated. As Jesus cleanses the temple in his righteous anger. And so it also tells me Jesus is not some wimpy guy that always smiles. You know, sometimes you look in the, in the children's Bibles and the pictures of Jesus and you're like, well, he looks really nice, but I don't think he'd harm a fly. And yet here, he's whipping and, and driving out the temple. Remember, Jesus was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. He was probably way buffer than I am because I sit at a computer usually, not at a woodworking table. Some might say Jesus is a man's man, and yet he uses his strength here to cleanse the temple. Look at verse 16. And he said to those who sold the doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Jesus declared that the temple was not to be a place for making money and doing business. It was to be a place to worship God and to pray. We see that the reason Jesus cleansed the temple was because they were misrepresenting God. They were misrepresenting God. They had made the temple into a market. They weren't there to worship. They were there to make a profit. And remember, with the design of the temple, in the most holy place, the holy room inside of the temple, was the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the place where God would sometimes manifest Himself, reveal Himself to the people. Beyond that, there was a a big thick curtain, a veil, that separated that room from the holy place. There was the most holy place and then the holy place. And that's where the priests who were assigned would go in and they would burn incense right there. And then outside of the temple itself was the inner courtyard where they would do the sacrifices and they would have these lavers and things for washing and all of those things. And then outside of that was a different court for the Jews. And beyond that was the outer court of the Gentiles. All these different barriers. And so if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, the closest you could come to what represented God's presence was that outer courtyard. And that was the market. And so if you were a Gentile, your best experience with God would be greed, bitterness, selfish ambition. They were misrepresenting the Lord. That is why Jesus was so firm in driving out the temple. Because Jesus does not like to be misrepresented, especially to the world. He wants to be clear that he's for everybody. And that's why he died on the cross for all. And so, verse 17, Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. 
Jesus was zealous for the house of God. And the Bible calls you and I the temples of the Holy Spirit. We're now the temple, the house of God. And so we might say Jesus is zealous for you and I. We think about how the Passover lamb was slain and put on the doorposts of the house. And then we have Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, who went inside the temple and he cleanses it from the inside out. And to me, this is just a great reminder that Jesus doesn't come just to straighten up our outside, but our inside as well. Jesus comes to clean the inside and outside of your life and my life. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, Jesus is speaking to a group of people. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. You see, they looked really good and really pretty on the outside. They looked really righteous and holy, and yet Jesus says on the inside, you are lacking. And if you've read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the whole point of that is Jesus cares about the inside, not just the outside. And that's why if you've put your faith in Jesus, you are saved, you're going to heaven from that moment forward. But also from that moment forward, the Holy Spirit begins to work on your heart, changing your desires, changing your thoughts, convicting you of, of even things that you think about because the Lord wants us to be cleansed on the inside and the outside so that you and I can better represent who Jesus is to the world. Now in verses 18 through 22, we read about Jesus' authority being questioned. Look at verse 18, it says, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, since you do these things? In other words, <clears throat> okay, Jesus, you've cleansed the temple, but can you give us like a miracle or do something miraculous so that we know that you have authority to do this? It's interesting to me that they didn't stop him and say, Wait a second, what's wrong with the market? They all knew it was corrupt. They all knew it was a black market. They weren't asking that. They were just asking, well, okay, that's right. We should do that. But what gives you the authority to do that? And so verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. You see, Jesus spoke of his death and resurrection, that if they destroy his body, which Jesus calls this temple, then he will raise it up in three days. That will be the sign, Jesus says. The resurrection will prove my authority to cleanse the temple and do a lot of other things too. But the people misunderstood him. They thought Jesus threatened to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, which they'd spent 46 years building, and they were going to spend another 35 to 40 years continuing to expand and build upon. And so to them, it was ludicrous for anybody to claim that they could destroy such an extravagant temple and then rebuild it, the whole thing, the whole shebang, in only three days. It was crazy. But it wasn't just foolishness, it was offensive. For them to imagine their cherished temple, the thing that represented their communing with the Lord, being destroyed. In fact, this quote and misunderstanding of Jesus was used against him when he was on trial. In Matthew chapter 26, in verses 59 through 61, 
It says, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now pause right there. It's, it's clear from this text that they'd already come up with the verdict. They just needed a reason to follow through with it, right? And so they weren't really looking for justice. But verse 60, as they looked for false testimony, they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Jesus spoke of his future death and resurrection, and yet the people understood this quote of Jesus to be a terrorist threat. Don't you remember when Jesus said he would destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days? And that right there set the people on fire. They were ready to condemn. And you can read the rest of that passage later. But it's, it's amazing to me that Jesus doesn't stop them and say, Whoa, guys, let me clarify. I'm talking about my body, not the temple. Jesus could have easily done that, cleared up that misunderstanding, and yet he didn't. And I think it's because Jesus' goal was not to save himself, but his goal was to save the world. And he needed to go to the cross in order to do that. And so Jesus was willing to be misunderstood, to be misinterpreted, and to be falsely accused on your behalf and on my behalf. In fact, we remember that Jesus was in perfect control of that situation because in John chapter 2, verse 19, where we just read in our passage, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You see, Jesus wasn't just promising that he could resurrect and come back to life, but Jesus was promising to do so based on his own power and authority. In John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. And so Jesus, God the Son, fully submitted to God the Father's will, empowered by God the Holy Spirit, directed by God the Father, he allowed himself to go through all of that, and then he rose again. Three days later, showing that he does have the power, showing he does have the authority, showing that he is worthy, and showing that Jesus is God. And so, verse 22 Jesus has just said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Verse 22, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said. As we read through the gospels, Jesus again and again tells his disciples point blank, clearly, we're going to go to Jerusalem, step one. I'm going to be arrested, step two. They're going to kill me, step three, and I'm going to come back to life, step four. And yet, after he rose again, then the disciples, oh, that's what he meant. How thick can you get? And you know what? I fit right in. So many times I'm so slow 
to be right there where the Lord wants me to be. So many times I'm like Peter and the Lord speaks to me and I say, not so, Lord. Don't ever say that to God, (laughs) right? Not so, Lord. I've got a better idea. No, Peter. Get behind me, Satan, is what Jesus said to Peter when he said that. And so I look at the, the example the disciples give us and I say, praise the Lord that he can take knuckleheads like them knuckleheads like me and he can use us for his glory and for his kingdom now in verses 23 through 25 we read about false belief verse 23 it says now when he was in jerusalem at the passover during the feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did and so apparently jesus didn't only give that sign of hey i will resurrect from the dead That's the sign that I have authority. But he also did other signs and miracles here. Perhaps he healed many people. John doesn't go into detail about what they were. But because of these many signs, many people believed in Jesus. And yet, look at the next verse. Verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man. For he knew what was in man you see the people loved jesus for his miracles they believed that he could do supernatural things they wanted to see him do it again they wanted to see him heal them in their own life and yet they lacked a true saving faith in jesus you might say they believed in jesus as healer but they did not believe in jesus as their savior as the son of god and this is a dangerous place to be in you see The crowds believed in Jesus because they liked what he did. They liked the miracles that he performed. But the moment Jesus does something they don't like, their faith crumbles. And we read about that later. In John chapter 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And he goes on to explain some things that once again the people misunderstand and they misinterpret. They take what he says a little too literally and not enough spiritually. And they say, huh? What? What are you saying, Jesus? And so we pick up in John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69, where it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. You see, these disciples that were walking with him, they liked what he did. They liked the miracles and the things that he said, and so they said, yes, I believe in Jesus because I like what he's doing. But that's a, that's a poor faith because the moment Jesus does something they didn't expect, does something they didn't like, says something they don't like, their faith crumbles, and they followed him no more. This passage continues in John chapter 6, verse 67, and it says, Then Jesus, he said to the twelve, you know, this group of People have left following him, and now he turns to the twelve disciples, and he says, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, in other words, Peter and the disciples' faith was not built upon liking what Jesus did, but it was built upon who Jesus is. It doesn't matter that Jesus will sometimes do things they don't expect, even do things they don't like. 
I wouldn't like having to wake up Jesus in the middle of a storm on a lake, thinking I'm dying, and saying, you're going to let us all die. Why would you let us go through that? They believed in Jesus because of who he was, not because of what he did. And so too, our faith must be built upon who Jesus is rather than what Jesus does. Pastor John Corson says it this way, and I have it quoted at the bottom of your note sheet. John Corson says, If you base your faith upon signs, you'll always be upset by the one that didn't happen, the prayer that wasn't answered, the healing that didn't come, the payment that didn't arrive. That is why our faith must be built and based not upon what Jesus does, but upon who he is. Who he is as revealed in the word. That is why Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In Romans chapter 10 verse 17, it's the word pointing to the person of Jesus Christ that produces genuine faith. And so I ask you, what is your faith built upon? Is your faith built upon all of the nice things and ways that he's come through for you in your life? Because I warn you that that is a very shallow faith. There may come a day where Jesus doesn't answer the prayer in the way that you expected him to. There may come a day where that sickness comes and Jesus doesn't take it away. And Jesus allows it to get worse. We have to remember that our hope is eternal salvation, being in heaven with the Lord forever. Our hope is not in him making this life here and now heaven. He never promised that. And yet it's so easy for me as a believer to forget that because I have a hard time seeing past the front of my nose. I'm so focused on the here and now. But our faith in Jesus has to be based on who he is, not on what he does or what he says. Otherwise, we too may reach a day where we turn away from the Lord and we say, I don't, I don't like that. A day where we read a passage in Scripture and we say, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like that teaching. I don't like that truth. You see, Jesus doesn't ask for our opinion. He asks for our surrender. And that's why we talk about believing in Jesus as surrender. Because we're surrendering our right that we never really had, our right to say, not so, Lord. We surrender that to him. And so as we're here, I think about the Apostle Paul, who was a great example of this. The Apostle Paul, whose faith was built in who Jesus is, not what he does. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul prayed three times for this thorn in his side to be taken away. And yet, God gave him his answer in verse 9, and he said to me, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. His grace is enough. What that means is if God never gives me or you another blessing this side of eternity, His grace is enough because He's given us eternal life. Do we believe that, church? Do we trust that? Even if He didn't give us anything else, until we're there in his presence, would we still follow him? Is his grace enough for you? My prayer for you and for me is that we are a church that says, Lord, 
yes, we do surrender to you. Surrender to your will. Your grace is enough. And we rest in your wisdom and your glory. We rest in your promise in Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Resting in his truth, not in what we expect him to do or want him to say. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word and we're so grateful for your love. And Lord, we're thankful for the passages in scripture that show us examples of people that we don't want to be like. We don't want to be like these disciples who followed you because they liked what they saw, but then turned away the moment that you disappointed them. God, we want to follow you because you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the Savior of the world. You are the Son of God, and you are our only hope to escape eternal punishment in hell. God, would you give us the faith we need to trust in you even when we don't understand what you're doing, even when we don't understand what you're saying. Lord, may we be a church that says we surrender to you and submit to your will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. During this next song, the men are going to come forward and pass out communion. The cups are double stacked, one cup with the cracker, one cup with juice stacked on top of it. So if you would like to remember Jesus today, then grab a stack and hold on to it through this next song. And afterwards, I'll come back up and we'll pray and we'll partake in communion together as we remember Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for you and I. Let's worship.
like a hurricane I am a tree Bending the knee The weight of His wind and mercy You know, when Jesus was there in the temple after clearing it out, he said, destroy this temple, calling his body the temple. Remember, the temple for the Jew, that was the place where they could meet with the Lord, the one place where they could offer a sacrifice to pay for their sin and commune with him. In a sense, it was the temple that was the mediator between God and man. 
But now no longer. Jesus says this temple, his body. Jesus is the mediator between you and your creator. And because Jesus has paid for our sin on the cross, he's paved the way for us. He's opened the door. He's tore down the veil. There's no longer anything holding us back from intimate fellowship and communion with our Lord. That's what I'm thinking about as we take the bread and the juice and remember his sacrifice for you. So go ahead now as you just think about his love and goodness for you. Take the bread and the juice. Lord, you do love us. You proved it on the cross. And Lord, you prove it still today because you're not done with us. Lord, though you've saved us, you're still making us more like you. And God, we just give you the glory. We worship you now. We praise you for who you are. And God, we look forward to being in your presence, face to face with you because of the work you've done on our behalf. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand and let's worship the Lord together with one last song.